0: Alrighty, so if you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 9, and our goal today is to cover the first 19 verses, this is one of the most important or most significant chapters on prayer in the whole Bible. So there's three main chapters, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. All 9's, right? So we're going to learn a lot about prayer today, and how. Incidentally, prophecy links to prayer. So it's interesting. But the main focus is on prayer and how Daniel prays as an example for us and how we should pray. So I believe that the most important thing we can do in the service of our King, our Lord Jesus Christ, is to become men and women of prayer. And so I'm hoping that we can learn a lot from the chapter today. So we're just going to jump in. We're going to Pray and then read the first nineteen verses of Daniel chapter nine, Father, thank you, Lord, that you are a great and awesome God, as Daniel prayed in this in as he started his prayer, a great and awesome God, and Lord, help us to remember that every time we pray that we're praying to a great and awesome God, and Lord, we love you, but we also respect you, we admire you, we honor you, Lord, I pray that our prayer lives would reflect that. And that we trust you, that you love us. And we trust you, that you want to work on our behalf. As amazing as that sounds, it's true. So we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asurus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and made confession, and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as to not obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities, our sin, and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and made yourself a name as it is this day, We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God... Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications for the Lord's sake, and for the Lord's sake cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications, our prayers, before you because of our righteous deeds, our goodness, but because of your great mercies, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act, do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. That's a awesome prayer, and on first reading, it's kind of overwhelming. God judged Jerusalem with a mighty judgment. You know, it wasn't just the physical destruction of the city. It's what happened as it was being destroyed. The people were dying of starvation. They were eating the babies, all that kind of stuff. It was a nasty affair. And he's saying, You are righteous, Lord. You are right. And it's all our fault because we sinned against you. That's the attitude that he has. We'll find that later. We'll dig in more. But first, Although Daniel was a seer or a prophet, he was still a student. That is, he was one who would read the word regularly, as the Jews call it, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and studied it carefully. Now, if Daniel was one who was given to reading and researching the scriptures, and, you know, he's old and he's well learned in the scriptures, he's been reading them all his life he knows a lot about them, then how much more do I need to do that? Reading the Scriptures is something that's really important. We'll come back to that later. So here, Daniel comes to the 25th chapter of Jeremiah and sees that Jeremiah foretold that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would carry the Jews into captivity. God allowed this because not only had they embraced idolatry, but they had ignored God's word continually. So not just ignoring God, but ignoring his word. Specifically as it related to the Sabbath year. In Leviticus chapter 25, God commanded that every seventh year, God's people were not to plough or cultivate the ground. The land was to have rest. On the sixth year, the Lord promised that he would give them twice as much in order to see them through the seventh year. But for 490 years, they ignored that commandment. It's a long time to ignore a commandment, isn't it? In other words, the land missed out on 70 years of rest. Every seven years it missed out on one year. And 490 years, divide that by seven, you get 70 years. Therefore, the Lord told Jeremiah that his people would be carried away captive for 70 years. We'll read that later. And while they were gone, the land would rest. So now, the 70 years is almost up. So what does Daniel do? Well, Jeremiah's writings and his prophecies don't just make Daniel curious. They make him want to start to pray. They move him to action. And that's always the purpose of prophecy. So after reading Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel was prompted to pray. God said it would happen, but how does God get things done? Through us, through people. It's a huge privilege that God has given us, that God will use us to get his will done down here on this earth. So many times, many people don't pray because they're not studying or meditating on the word. When they try to pray, they don't know what to talk about. But there is good news. God is a great conversationalist. Okay. And he initiates the conversation through his word, the Bible. That's why reading the Bible is important and studying it, I believe, is essential for a good prayer life and a good relationship with God, which are very closely tied together. As I read the scriptures, I discover the things I should talk about in prayer. Does that make sense? As I read the Bible, I know what God wants me to pray for, what he wants me to talk about, not just for other people, but also for me. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asaurus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So, in the first year of Darius, the son of Osiris, in the lineage of the Medes, etc. So it's important to understand that Cyrus is the big king. okay? Not like the king of kings like Jesus is, but he's the king over the entire Mede and Persian Empire. He's the one that conquered the Babylonians. And Darius is a sub-king over the realm or province of Babylon, as it says here in verses 1 and 2. So why is this important? Because God... Revealed that Cyrus would be the leader who would defeat the Babylonians, and Cyrus was the leader who defeated the Babylonians, even though he's not mentioned here, because specific to this story, it's Darius that Daniel is serving under. But Cyrus is the king of all the sub kings, if that makes sense. So you got Cyrus, the main king, and then you got these other kings, which he puts in charge of different realms in the province. And we'll read about the Cyrus prophecies later. Now it says understood by the books. So Daniel nine is one of the most amazing and significant prophetic passages in the Bible and it begins with Daniel's understanding and application of prophecy. So what books was he reading? Well the Tanakh, what he had at the time, the ones that were already written. Okay. So the inspired word of God. So Daniel understood some of the prophecies. So prophecy is meant to be understood. We need to understand the main points of prophecy. And as I said, the books represent the Tanakh, the Old Testament, what he had up to that time, because it wasn't all written at his time. There was more to come. And in the New Testament, we have 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that's what Daniel believed. This is all true. And so we need to come to the Bible with that confidence. And it also shows that his prayer life is based on his Bible reading, his the word of God. And Spurgeon says, a quote from Spurgeon, Oh, that you studied your Bibles more. Oh, that we all did. How we could plead the promises. How often we should prevail with God when we could hold him to his word and say, Fulfill this word to your servant. Upon you, you have caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand praying when our mouth is full of God's word, for there is no word that can prevail with him like his own. So we use God's promises. We take God's promises back to God. God, you said that you wanted this, that you said this is going to happen. And we pray it. And we know that prayer is going to be answered because God's already said it's going to happen, right? But we become a part of what God is doing. I want to give an example. George Mueller. He was a man of great faith who God used in mighty ways and his life is an inspiration to all of us. What was one of his secrets? What made him different to all the other people? Why did God use him more? Well, I suggest that one of the reasons is that he read the Bible a lot. In his testimony, in his biography, they say that he read the Bible cover to cover 100 times. That's cover to cover, Genesis, Revelation, 100 times. And that's not including all the preparation for Bible studies and preaching and all that kind of stuff. This is just his personal reading. So he was immersed in the Word of God. What does it say in Romans 10.17? Can anyone remember Romans 10.17? I'll put it up on the screen for you. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the? Word of God. So where did George Mueller get his faith? From the Word of God. So the more we get into the Word prayerfully, the more our faith will increase. So reading the Bible helps us and guides us in our prayers. The Scriptures reveal the heart of God and reveal to us how we should pray. And this year I've been personally inspired to try and read the Bible twice through this year. Okay, I'm a bit behind. I'm kind of about one and a half times in the year so far, if I keep going at the current rate. But seriously, it's only six chapters a day or 30 minutes. Now, is that really too much time to give to God? Many people get much more time to the TV or Facebook or work or sport or hobbies or reading or whatever interests or motivates them. So remember that as Christians, we will have to give an account of how we spend our time when we stand before the Lord at the beam of seat. And 1 Corinthians says this. This is for Christians, okay? Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, it's talking about the gospel, the foundation of the gospel. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. So what's that talking about? It's not a judgment of condemnation, but rather reward. Our works will go through a fire of purification. Anything that's not done for Christ, we burned up. There's no reward for things that aren't done for Christ. And we'll look back on our lives and we'll think, all that time spent watching TV, what a waste. It's all burned up. That section of my life, it's all burned up. There's nothing to show for it. I want to think about, I'm going to stand before God. It's not for condemnation, it's for reward. God wants to use me, he wants to reward me, but I must make myself available to him to be used. So what is going to be rewarded? Well, we get rewarded for the things that have eternal value. We get rewarded for the things that Christ did in me, the things that Christ did through us the things we did that pleased God when we're living by faith and we're motivated by love for Christ. Now I want to give you another example of praying according to the word of God and that's Moses. The background to this passage in Exodus 32 is Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's getting the Ten Commandments having this nice time with God and the people are downstairs and they're saying, ah. We're getting impatient here, Aaron. Make us some gods. And they got their earrings together and, you know, the story. So we pick it up in chapter 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down for your people, I like that, your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. So here's God. He's distancing himself from the people. saying, no, they're your people. I don't want these people. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. It's the test for Moses. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He turns it back on God, okay? These are your people, according to your word. Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. See, Moses reminding God. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. And now verse 13, it's in bold. It says, remember, and then what's he referring to now? The promises that God made to Abraham concerning the children of Israel. How can God destroy the children of Israel if he's promised to bring them into the land? Okay, so that's what Rose is praising in verse 13. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, And all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And verse 14, So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So, we won't go into all the nitty-gritty of that, but just as an example of Moses using what was already written in Scripture in his prayer, in his intercession for the people. So we can use this New Testament scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, whatever God puts in our hearts, to pray for other people. Jesus, what is he doing now? He's in heaven. What's he doing? Interceding for us right now. We should be modeling what Jesus is doing in that we also should be interceding for others. God calls us to be praying for others. So the battle for the hearts and minds of unbelievers is won both through witnessing and prayer. It's what we say, but it's also what we do on our knees. And Jeremiah is a really good example of this. He's broken before the Lord. He's crying, literally crying before the Lord. He's called the weeping prophet. But before men, he's bold. He's a strong witness. Oi, you sinning. Okay? But before the Lord, he's broken. His heart's broken. And that's how we should be, okay? That's how Daniel is. And think about our families. The most important people we can pray for is our families. I mean, seriously, if we don't pray for our families, who else is going to love them enough to pray for them earnestly? Okay, then it goes on to say um, in verses 1 and 2 there, um, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. So Daniel knew that effective prayer comes out of knowing and praying both God's word and our circumstances. And Daniel was a student of prophecy and he understood the verses from Jeremiah 25 and 29. And he understood they said the captivity was going to be 70 years. So here are the verses. They're both on the same slide. It says in Jeremiah 25 verses 11 to 13, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when seventy years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. And the next verse i read is Jeremiah 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So that's what Daniel's reading. The book of Jeremiah was already there. He already had those scrolls. Now, a couple of points here. Daniel regarded these years as real, literal years. They were in no way understood as symbolic years and one of the things that people do with scripture is they they allegorize it they spiritualize it and they make it say what they want unless there's a real good reason a really good case that it doesn't say what it says like you can't take it literally then you should take it as it's written okay always take the bible literally unless it's obvious that you can't so when it comes to the thousand year millennial rule and reign of jesus christ Is it going to be a thousand years? Well, is there a reason not to say, not to believe it's a thousand years? I don't think so. It's it's simple, it's repeated often, and it's simple. So just understand it to be a thousand years. And don't spiritualize and allegorize. It's like the seven-year tribulation period too. So another factor that caused Daniel to pray was another fulfilled prophecy. Now, Cyrus, now we come to Cyrus. If you're Daniel, picture yourself as being Daniel at this time. You've been reading now the book of Isaiah, okay? And guess what it says? This is amazing. Isaiah 44 verse 28 to chapter 45 verse 4. It's only five verses. It says, Who says so? God says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Now I didn't add the word Cyrus. The word Cyrus is in the original, okay? God says of Cyrus 200 years before, through the prophet Isaiah, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, again mentioned by name, 200 years before he comes on the scene and defeats Babylon, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. And we went through that before um, last week, I think. Verse 4, it says, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. So Cyrus was known by God before he was born. God knew he would become the one who would be the king over the Medes and Persians. The empire there. And Daniel. Oh, the Medes and Persians are becoming a... Bit of a problem to the Babylonians. I wonder who's their leader? Cyrus. Oh, that's good. They beat the Babylonians. Who's the king? Cyrus. Aha. Uh-huh. Everything's working according to plan. Okay. So imagine the confidence that would have given Daniel. So Daniel knew that there would be 70 years of captivity. And Daniel prayed passionately that God would do all that he had promised to do. So prophecy does not exclude our prayers and participation. Daniel could have said, well, God said through the book of Jeremiah that, yeah, there'll be 70 years. So let's just wait. Let's just let God's word take its course. No, no, that's not what happened. Daniel got into it. He prayed passionately. And this is actually a, come back to it later, but it's three or four years before the 70 years was up. So he's praying passionately three or four years before the 70 years are up. So he's getting in early. And there's a verse, it's Ezekiel 22 verse 30. It's a very powerful verse. It says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall, and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. God was looking for an intercessor. God was looking for someone to pray. He wanted to show mercy, but there was no one praying. So he destroyed the land. Listen, this is powerful because it's our job to ask God to do what he's promised to do. Okay, God is looking for people like us, you and me, ordinary people, to stand in the gap, to intercede so that God can show mercy. What's a prophecy that we can start praying for in our time? Yeah, Maranatha. You know what Maranatha means? Come quickly, Lord. Yep. Where do you find that? Revelation chapter 20, verse 20. Now, I just told you that he started praying three or four years before, and God has an essential role for us to play in his plan of events. God said it would happen, yet it took people. Jeremiah made a prophecy, Daniel made a prayer, and Cyrus made a proclamation. So God uses people. And someone said that one of the dangers that face Christians today is that too often our interest in the prophetic scriptures is of a curious and speculative nature or else we conclude that God will carry out his sovereign purpose no matter what we do, so that we do not concern ourselves with those matters. And that's, I think, in a big part of the church, people say, oh, it doesn't matter, who cares about prophecy? And around the church, there's a a lot of ignorance around prophecy in the scriptures. Who cares? Or a little bit curious or speculative, you know, who's the Antichrist going to be, all that kind of stuff, which isn't really important. We need to be understanding the big picture. And another thing I want to point out that Daniel was no one special. He wasn't in the priestly family and he wasn't a career prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. In fact, he was a busy man. He was a high-ranking official in the kingdom. He had a busy schedule. If there was anyone who had an excuse to not pray, it was Daniel. (laughs) He was in charge of many, many people but he still found the time to pray. He was never, ever too busy to pray. So we can't use that excuse, I'm too busy. You try and be in Daniel's shoes, he still found the time. Here's a quote from Spurgeon, and this inspired me a little bit. It says, Do not, I pray you, get into the habit of neglecting the assembling of yourselves together for prayer. Now, this isn't scripture, this is Spurgeon, but he's, I'll read that again. Do not, I pray, get into the habit of neglecting the assembling of yourselves together for prayer. How often have I said, all our strength lies in prayer. When we were very few, God multiplied us in answer to prayer. So we think of Spurgeon, this great preacher with his great, you know, church, but he started, like us, as small. And How? Through prayer. So prayer, when we pray together, it unites us and empowers us as believers as we pray according to the will of God together. The praying church is the only kind of church that God can use. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in the local body of Christ, then you need to be committed to that local body of Christ, your local church. So the prayer meeting is, and I've said this before, is probably the most important part of our Christian fellowship. There's nothing more encouraging or powerful than praying with other believers. It's the most personal thing you can do. And just like the family that prays together stays together, that's one of um, Marissa's favorite sayings, so the church that prays together stays together. Now one of Satan's tactics that he uses to divide churches is to stop them praying together. And that will eventually lead to disunity and division and complaining. Whereas you get yourself together and you pray, and then all those little things that irritate us, you know, because we're all human, sinful, all different preferences and stuff like that, then prayer will overcome that. Like the scripture says, love overcomes a multitude of sin. Well, prayer can overcome a multitude of different preferences and sin. Daniel's preparation for prayer. Now we're in verse two, and we will move faster. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So I set my face. What does this mean? What does it mean to set your face to do something? You're determined. Daniel had a goal to reach through prayer and he approached God as a man who would not take the answer no. And we say, well, that's a bit presumptuous, yeah. But no, it's not presumptuous. I'll explain why. He did this because he was rightly convinced that his prayer was in the will of God. So once we know that our prayer is in the will of God, then we should not stop. Nothing should stop us. We should say, God, this is your will for this to happen. You've revealed it to us, in this case by prophecy. I'm going to keep praying until you say yes, until this happens. And we don't give up. And this is the same attitude that Jesus had toward the suffering he was to endure on the cross. Luke nine fifty one. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And talking about prayer, Spurgeon said, we ask but little, and God gives it. (laughs) So if we don't ask for much, we're not going to get much. Okay, God says, is God automatically going to give us wisdom? No, because he says in James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give him generously the wisdom that he needs. Okay, that's my version. Now, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. What's this all about? Well, this is preparation for prayer. How do we prepare ourselves to pray? Well, he said his face, which speaks of determination. I'm not taking no for an answer. Sackcloth is a hairy garment. It's camel hair usually Turned inside out so the bristles of the camel rub against your skin. So it's not very comfortable. He was showing, why was he doing this? He was showing he was serious in seeking the Lord. He was taking away his physical comfort. Fasting. Fasting is another way we can show we're serious about seeking the Lord. Now, why is fasting a good thing? Because generally speaking, we spend most of our day. Bombarding our physical senses with food, with you know, it could be um, entertainment, it could be, you know, doing things we enjoy doing, playing with the kids, stimulating ourselves, getting lots of different stimuli into our physical body. But fasting is a practical way of saying I'm not going to continue to shower myself with physical sensations and stimuli. I'm going to slow down. Do you think it's important? that we slow down sometimes. And physiologically, we actually think clearer when we're fasting. And that's scientifically proven. We can think clearer when we're fasting. It helps us mentally to think clearer, to think better. So fasting, what it isn't, well, fasting is not a way to score points with the Lord. Look at me. I pray for three days. You better answer my prayer. No, it's not about that. It's just a way to deny our flesh physically in order to concentrate on the spiritual realm with greater intensity. It's to refocus ourselves on the spiritual, the eternal, and take away those other things that are distracting us. Does that make sense? So food isn't the only thing we can fast from. We can fast from TV, we can fast from our phones, we can fast from lots of different things that distract us. All these stimuli. We want to put ourselves in a position where we can hear him, God, more clearly. Okay? That's the whole idea of this. So, as a teenager, go back to chapter 1 of Daniel. Daniel understood the importance of fasting. And here he is now, at 86, still fasting. So, fasting is a regular part of Daniel's prayer life. Okay, verse 4. And this section goes right through to verse 15. And he's making confession, so I'll just read it. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So just start with verse 4. So, O Lord, great and awesome God, and we should all start our prayers with recognizing the greatness and goodness of God. So Daniel knows that the problem is not with God, the problem is with us. Why? Because Daniel said God keeps his covenant and mercy towards those who love him. So if we're out of sorts with God, if we're suffering because of our sin, it's not God's problem, it's our problem. We're the ones who have sinned. Okay. There's a quote here, I don't know who said it, but Daniel's prayer was remarkable for both its understanding and earnestness. Many pray with understanding, but not earnestness. Others are earnest, but have no understanding in prayer. The two together are a powerful combination. And Spurgeon said, Oh, that our prayers could get beyond praying till they got to agonizing. So to be serious about what you're doing. And he says, We have sinned and committed iniquity. So, Daniel is confessing Israel's sin, the nation of Israel, and he prays as if he were as bad as the rest of Israel. So, there's two ways we can pray. We can pray that they did this and they did that, and I pray for them, or we can pray we. We did this, we did that. Now, I want to suggest that the they prayers, you know, I pray for them, those sinners who have done all those nasty things and you know i don't think god's going to hear those prayers very much but if we say we and we include ourselves in that then what we're doing is we're seeing ourselves correctly and we see our fellow saints with compassion so we see ourselves correctly in god's view as sinners and we see our fellow saints with compassion it's not putting yourself as being better than them but rather you're putting yourself on the same level. And you might say, well, Daniel's confession of sin might seem phony. But no, Daniel looked at himself, compared himself to the Lord, and when we do that, how do we see ourselves? As sinners. We see God as being perfect, and we see us as being far from perfect. i got a quote from John Corson. He said, wouldn't it be radical if we did that? if we really saw ourselves as one body. Because remember, this the whole thing is this we thing. Not they, but we, the inclusive. When you drop a hammer on your toe, the rest of the body doesn't say, what a silly thing you are, toe. No, the rest of the body immediately begins to help or aid the toe. The leg lifts the foot off the ground and your hand goes down and holds it. The rest of the body helps. The whole body gathers around the hurting member. But what do we do in the body of Christ when someone drops a proverbial hammer? We find fault. We criticize. And that shouldn't be. So if I'm finding fault with people, the problem is with me. Daniel, a truly righteous man, said, we have sinned, Father. And in so doing, he models his unity. So just remember that we are all Sinners, we've all fallen down and we just need to show compassion on other people. Because when we fall, we would like them to show compassion on us, true? And another aspect of this is that Daniel understands that the problems of the people of Israel, the things they're going through, was not because God was cruel, but because they were sinful. And just to highlight this, when the judgments of God come down in the tribulation period, the saints, the angels and the elders in heaven say, In Revelation 19.2 Righteous and true are your judgments. Righteous and true are your judgments. God is pummeling the earth. People are dying and they say righteous and true are your judgments. Not a single one says that's not fair. They say what you're doing Lord is perfect. So when we get on the other side, when we're in heaven, we see things from God's point of view it's perfect. What he's doing is fair and it's perfect. So one of the things in prayer or to be mature in your walk with the Lord is to recognize that God is right in everything that he does. All our circumstances, anything that happens to us is good for us. So the reason we're in the mess we're in is because of sin. It's not God's fault. He is righteous and true in all he does. And then he goes on to say, righteousness belongs to you but to us shame of face. So Again, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. When we do something wrong and we go through some consequences, we experience shame, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. Okay. You'd think that's pretty obvious, but what happens? Most people, when they go through something, they what do they do? The first thing they do is what? Complain. Why am I going through this? It's not fair. Have you ever complained to God about your problems? (laughs) So, Daniel didn't think for a moment that God was too hard on Israel. He knew God was completely righteous and any failure was on Israel's side. So, what is the opposite of complaining? If we're not meant to complain, what do we do instead? We confess. Daniel confessed. and He didn't complain, he confessed. An example here, during times of great revival among God's people, the Holy Spirit always brings a deep conviction and awareness of sin. And when we respond rightly to that conviction of sin, confession happens. And there's this guy called J. Irwin Orr. He gives a principle to govern confession and an example. So talking about confession, if you sin secretly, confess secretly. Admitting publicly that you need the victory but keeping the details to yourself because you haven't affected anyone else, you haven't hurt anyone else. Let others know that I'm struggling. Please pray for me to have victory but that's it. If you sin openly, then confess openly to remove stumbling blocks from those whom before you have hindered. If you have sinned spiritually, like prayerlessness, lovelessness and unbelief, as well as complaining, etc., then confess to the church you have been a hindrance. So again, it's a public confession. Look, I haven't been praying, I've been loveless, I've been critical, and that's something that affects everybody. And genuine, appropriate confession will be sincere, specific, and thorough. So, Orr describes how in the 1952 revival in Brazil, a woman in a crowded church confessed, Please pray for me, I need to love people more. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, the local leader told her gently, That is not a confession, sister. Anyone could have said it. Because it's not specific, you see. Later in the service, the same service, the lady stood again and said, Please pray for me. What I should have said is that my sharp tongue has caused a lot of trouble in this congregation. See, it's more specific. It's public because she had affected everyone publicly. And the pastor leaned over to awe and whispered, Now she's talking. So, fasting, sackcloth, ashes, praying from a low place, a place of humility, and that's the only way to be effective in our prayer. So we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. He didn't complain about his circumstances, he didn't make any excuses, and he didn't make any excuses for their predicament, any excuses for their sin. And often we do that. We tend to make excuses for our sin. And often, even our confessions, we can make excuses. Lord, I'm so sorry for doing this, but it was so difficult being in a situation. <laughs> and we make excuses for ourselves. So, no excuses. If we sin, take responsibility for it. Now, the next phrase says, He has confirmed His words. So, God has confirmed His words as it is written in the law of Moses. So, what is written in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that if they rebelled against God, they would eventually be taken from their land and go into captivity. So Daniel here is saying, God, you are faithful to do what you said you would do. They have gone into captivity just like you said they would if they were disobedient. Now, the next phrase, verse 13, All this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. Now, this is the sin of prayerlessness. You go through things, and what do you do? Nothing. (laughs) You don't pray. You just kind of try and work it out yourself. So, when we sense trial or difficulty, we should go immediately to prayer. Those hard circumstances should push us to prayer. And if we're not driven to prayer, this red light should go on in our head. There's something wrong with our heart. We're not trusting the Lord. We're not walking with him the way we should, okay? We've become distant, we've become cold. Prayerlessness is a sin because it's a symptom of pride and self-sufficiency. It shows that we're living independent of God and his power and we're not living in humble obedience upon God. So, Micah six eight, you probably know this one. O people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, the next one, next phrase, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. So what do we pray? We don't talk about God bringing people out of Egypt. What's our big thing God did to prove his power in the New Testament? Yeah, he, uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And we have Ephesians one nineteen to 19-20. So this is the equivalent of what Daniel is saying here. You brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. Well. It says in Ephesians one19 and 20, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So we go back to the resurrection. We have this resurrection power in us, the Holy Spirit living in us. So when we talk about God's power, we refer back to the resurrection. God, you raised Jesus in the dead, you can do this. And then the next section is 16 to 19. It's Daniel asking God to forgive and restore Jerusalem. i just read these verses quickly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins, and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. And this is important, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear! O Lord, forgive! O Lord, listen and act! Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, just want to focus on this thing about for we do not present our supplications or prayers before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. So, a person who understands grace will pray according to the mercy of God. Does that make sense? If you understand God's grace, you're going to ask him things, not because you think you deserve it, but because you believe that God wants to bless you. Whereas if you are got a legalistic attitude, then your prayers won't be based on God's mercy, they'll be based on your performance. God, I've read my Bible every day this week. I pray that you'll bless my children, I pray you'll bless my family and It might not be what you say. It could just be his attitude. Well, I've done these things and now God owes me. Okay, It's not the way it works. So let's go back to let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. So after his confession of Israel's sin and God's great righteousness, Daniel asks God, simply asks God, to mercifully turn his kind attention to Jerusalem and the temple. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. Remember, it's a priestly blessing. And he also prays according to all your righteousness. So it's not for our benefit, it's for the Lord's benefit that you will be glorified. Now, why is Daniel not praying specifically, Lord, the temple needs to be rebuilt, the the people need to come home, we need some money, we need some food, we need protection. Why isn't he praying all those specific things? He's just asking God that his face will shine upon them. Well, Spurgeon put it this way. Oh, that we might learn to pray so that God should be the subject as well as the object of our prayers. Oh God, thy church needs you above everything else. A poor, little, sick, neglected child needs 50 things, but you can put all those things into one if you say that the child needs its mother. The child needs clean clothes, the child needs food, the child needs a clean nappy, the child needs medicine. If you say the child needs a mother, the mother will do all those things for the child, right? So the church, we need lots of things too. We're very needy. But we can put them all into one thing, and we can say that the church of God needs her God. We need God. God is the one who provides everything that we need. And it says there, do not delay for your own sake. So Daniel's prayer, Daniel's heart is for the glory of God and not his own benefit. He's not thinking about the benefit of himself and his people. He's thinking about the benefit of God. So when God is glorified, then we also are glorified. We also are blessed. Our primary purpose is to see God glorified. What did Jesus say? I always do those things that please the Father and bring glory to the Father. So is it wrong to pray for our own needs? No. Jesus invites us to ask. He said, give us this day of daily bread. At the same time, we need to have an even greater passion for the glory and benefit of God than for our own needs. And so his motives are pure. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? I would say that this phrase here, we did not present our supplications and prayers before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. That's the attitude we should come to the Lord in. That's praying in the name of Jesus. That's one part of it. We should pray and our words should express the fact that we are praying according to Jesus' merit and righteousness and not our own. And talking about this, Jesus gave a parable. So we shouldn't be trusting in ourselves or self-righteous. And He gives this parable in Luke 18, 9-14. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. And I'm reading this because this attitude can affect our prayer life. It says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you God, that I'm not like other peoples. Then going back to what Daniel said, the we and the they. This is the they prayer. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, Returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So how do we apply this parable? Well, it's very simple. Don't think you have to give God a reason to bless you. Approach him solely on the basis of his mercy, otherwise Satan will quench the spirit of prayer in you by saying you have no right to pray. Does that make sense? i read it again. Don't think you have to give God a good reason to bless you. Approach him solely on the basis of his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his love. Otherwise, Satan will quench the spirit of prayer in you by saying you have no right to pray. And so, O Lord, hear the next phrase there. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. It's like a wrestler. He's praying. He's, come on, God, come on. And God wants us to pray like that. Spurgeon says Spurgeon's really good at stuff in prayer. He says, Follow up your advantage. Build another prayer on the answer that you already have. If you have received a great blessing, say because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him, because he has heard me once, therefore I will call again. So answer prayer should encourage us to pray more. But he also says, Spurgeon, cold, half hearted prayers ask God to deny them. Only persistent prayers will be replied to. When the church of God cannot take no for an answer, like Daniel said, this is your will, God. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to set my face till I get an answer. So when a pleading soul must have it, when the Spirit of God works mightily in him so that he cannot let the angel go without a blessing. That's talking about Jacob. The angel shall not let go till he has given the blessing to such a pleading one. Brethren, if there is only one among us that can pray as Daniel did, with intensity, the blessing will come. So, Jacob wrestling the angel, all night, he's not letting go. And God's saying, let go, let go. And he's like, no, not until you bless me. Not until I get this answer to my prayer. I'm asking you to bless me. I'm not letting go. I'm holding on. I'm persevering in this prayer that you will bless me. And finally, God did. And it was at break of morning. All night, Jacob wrestled. It's like wrestling in prayer. And Jesus gives a parable, I'm just going to finish with this, Luke 18, 1-8. It's a parable of the persistent widow. It says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show them that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I am going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? And the answer is, no. I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? And the answer is, very few, unfortunately. So, in other words, how many people will the Lord find praying fervently and effectively when he returns? Probably not many. Jesus says in Matthew 24, Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. So, how do we not let our love grow cold? Jude 20 to 21, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, on the power of the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So, How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? By praying by the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, looking for His mercy. Not according to our works, but according to His mercy. So Father, I thank you for this fantastic chapter in the Scriptures, which really has challenged me, and there's lots in it, Lord. I just pray that you help us to go back through this and read it for ourselves. And Lord, that you would speak to us as we read this and we seek to be more effective in our prayer life, Lord, that we seek to be more effective in your kingdom. And that, Lord, all these little things we've talked about today, our attitudes and things like that, Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves, check ourselves, and, Lord, if there's anything we need to repent of, that we can, that we can confess and repent, and, Lord, we can become warm towards you, warmer. Lord, we can become On fire, like Daniel was, we can pray with fervency and nothing would stop us, Lord. Lord, we pray for wisdom in what we should pray for. Lord, make it clear what you want us to pray for so we're not wasting our time. And Lord, once we know what we should be praying for, once you've given us that direction, it will help us not to give up, no matter how long it takes. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.